hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show! Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 397 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice of young adult cancer. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. I'm your co-producer, Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first-time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, Stupid Chemicals yet again... Did you know that 20% of all industry chemicals are regulated for human safety? Only 20%. Yes, it's true. Despite decades of progress, harmful chemicals are still lurking in our food, our personal care products, and just about everything else you can think of. <clears throat> Water bottles. We are joined by Michael Green, the CEO of the Center for Environmental Health, and Nicole Acevedo, the Science Director of Environmental Health and Safety at Beauty Counter. To discuss key issues around exposure to chemicals of concern and what you can do to help protect yourself with our survivor spotlight on young adult breast cancer survivor Monique Tremblay. Hello, Mallory. Hello, Laurel. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Good evening. <laughs> yes. All that. Hold on about your chips. What's going on? As I go through puberty, live on the air. <clears throat> As I get over these allergies, you know, my ears are so clogged, I could barely hear myself. So you'll have to correct me when I make mistakes. Seasonal allergy time. It's, it's terrible. And terrible. I feel so badly because everyone in the office seems to have these seasonal allergies. And I'm like, yes, fall, chilly weather, leaves changing. And everybody's like, oh, well, hold on. I am all for the fall. Yes, All you are. for the fall. I just have to take a lot of um, medicines to enjoy the fall. Yes, I would agree with her at this point. So... Um, we have uh, our gigantic West Coast conference coming up very, very soon. Just two and a half weeks, little, three weeks, a little bit longer. Yeah, three, through approximately three weeks. It's Fun three time. weeks from this Saturday, right? Yes. Okay, so three and a half. Yeah. Yeah, two October weeks. October twenty ninth. For anyone it's, who's we're bad doing at math. calendar math really yeah. poorly Anybody right now. Anybody who's bad at math, October twenty ninth. Yeah. Yes. 
It's coming up. We have the uh, fabulous Emily McDowell. Yes. Who is our special guest. Very excited for that. Who was just that. on the show. You can check the archives for Emily on the show most recently. There's no good card for this. Yes. That is That explains her in a nutshell. So we have uh, some interesting stuff going on research-wise. Uh, if you follow us on Facebook, we have a Be the Research um, social initiative. When we partner with academic centers, we invite you to look at some of our studies and consider applying uh, if you meet some of the eligibility criteria. We've helped, uh, I'll nerd out for a second, we've helped close a lot of research studies with numerous academic centers over the years because our community is truly invested in engaging with the academic world. And our research, uh, not that all research matters, but our research is specifically around the wellness and psychosocial benefits to young adults. So kudos to all of you that uh, support our research initiatives. But we've got a lot of cool stuff on our Facebook page happening right now. What else is on the wall? Oh, we're, we're like jumping at the mic. Uh, there was a really great article about the 12 lessons I learned as a 21-year-old cancer patient. Um, did I write that? You did not. <laughs> um, but it, it's got a really unique voice to it. Um, I, I appreciate number three, make stuff up. <laughs> uh, then it was written by me. <laughs> yeah, when, when someone asks That's my you life. about something, you just make something up. Um, it's, it was a really interesting read. That's part of the survivorship tactic of fake it till you make it. I mean, sometimes that's just what you got to do. Exactly. And um, we, uh, the never healing wounds from childhood cancer, that, that one re- resonated with me because, A, I am one, but it also talks about something I'm very fervently vocal about, which is that pediatric cancer, everyone seems to think the general public consensus, I want to be corrected if I'm wrong, but the general public consensus continues to be that, oh, you're done, right? Good. Look at you. And yet there are nearing half a million Americans who beat cancer as a kid that are dealing with significant consequences of cure that no one really takes into consideration. Like so our, our last spotlight. Yep, uh, exactly. Kelly and... Jacqueline? Jacqueline. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me remembering something. Yeah, and I think this article, too, was so powerful in that it was written from the point of view of the mom. You know, it was written right. from this point of view where it was like, you know, my son went through this and um, we all thought that it was going to be over and we all thought that it was over. But these are things that we are all still doing. And I think that that was very powerful as well. It's not just the patient who goes through it and who has this lingering or has this aftermath, but it's also the family around them who has to adjust. And I think not just adjust day to day, but adjust to what the future looks like, you know, adjust to the idea that what your son or daughter's or your child's future was going to be in your eyes is not what it will be. And I think that that was very powerful as well. Well, then we also look at like Jessica Malore who's been on our show, Jessica Malore, um, is a young adult survivor. She had cancer, as, as a heart condition as a child, then got cancer after that. Yes. And then yeah. she's back in treatment again for all these late effects from the benefits of being alive today. So, <clears throat> you know, pediatric cancer is, is only what it's worth if you think about the consequences of beating cancer. So with that said, uh, you're off, both of you fabulous people, to Denver, by the time we do the next show, you will have been Coloradoized again. Yes, I will still be Coloradoized. Yes. I'll still still be hanging out there. 
Laurel, is this your first time in Colorado, or will it be? It is. I am so excited. One of my cousins lives in Denver, Colorado, and he always talks about how amazing it is. And uh, I'm just very excited to go out and to see it. Going to be a lot of fun. And why are you going to Colorado? Well, uh, last year it was referred to as Plan Jam. Um, I, I think Plan Jam is an appropriate term. Plan Jam. Um, <laughs> But we will be having a massive meeting of the minds with the CancerCon 2017 steering committee, um, and we're we're gonna get some some really exciting things rolling and ha- put together our minds to come up with some ideas to build the CancerCon community so and get the word out. What is the CancerCon steering committee? Ah, the CancerCon steering committee is a incredible group of right now eleven people. Who have dedicated their time to helping us make CancerCon as incredible as possible. Um, they are pretty fantastic Uber volunteers who have gone to CancerCon before and and want to help make it better and better every year. The Kool Aid drinkers who are drinking the Kool Aid. They are drinking our Kool Aid. Yeah. yeah, and they're they're pretty spectacular. We have, and what's great is we have a. We have a range of people on the committee who are survivors themselves, to caregivers, right. to advocates. So they really help us make sure that we're really getting to every corner of the population. Awesome. Well, have a wonderful trip, and we'll see you back here whenever you show up. On Monday. <laughs> Monday for me. Yes. I'll be back Wednesday because yeah. uh, Allie and I will be All the doing some recon yes. for, for more cancer con stuff. Exactly. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's kick off our show. All right, in our spotlight, Monique Tremblay is a 28-year-old breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer last October. Her mission is to make sure young women check themselves and stay in tune with their bodies. She has an MBA and is a healthcare digital marketer. I'm so excited to have her on the show. Please welcome Monique Tremblay. Hello. I'm uh, really glad we can get you on the show. It's uh, timely since October is Pink Nausea Month, and I'm sure you <laughs> plan to get breast cancer in October on purpose. Oh, yes. I'm seeing the pink everywhere. So it's yeah. definitely in everybody's face this time of the month, but I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. No, it's great. It's great. I am. So you're, you're, so now you're a year and, uh, and sort of a, pretty much a year out, correct? Yes, I was diagnosed uh, with stage 2 breast cancer last October, October 22nd to be exact. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, it'll be my year since I was diagnosed. I, I can't believe a year has flown by <laughs> looking back at it now. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a crazy year to say the least. Well, I mean, if you know stupid cancer, you know we, we make fun of breast cancer awareness month and every awareness month for that matter mm-hmm. because, you know, everything is an equal playing field as far as we're concerned as a nonprofit organization. But specifically in breast cancer, there is a string of typically, um, you know, unannounced or, or mis, misdiagnoses or not being taken seriously or self-exam is only as good as primary care. And I'd love you to share your story as how this was caught, um, what your, I, I don't use the word like journey too often, but how did you navigate through just being a normal human being and then finding your way into this crazy mess that we are. Yeah. So my story started last year, but 
it also started way before that. I have had a history of having cysts or fibroadenomas, as they're called, um, in the past. And I had two surgeries before I found out all of this, and they came back benign. So my breast specialist was like, Monique, you know, don't worry. I think this is just something we may have to deal with for quite some time. You're young, and I wouldn't worry too much about if you find another cyst in the future. So I, you know, I, when I find a cyst, I would be a little bit worried, but wouldn't think too much about it. And I saw my breast specialist last July, had my yearly ultrasound, everything came back fine, nothing to worry about. So I went on my way. And then not too long past that, probably two months later in September, I was laying down in bed and felt a lump. And I freaked out a little bit, um, like I did in the past. And I'm like, this was not there in July. Like, what the heck is going on? So then the next day I called my doctor and just said, you know, can you get me in? I found a lump that wasn't there and I'm nervous. And so he brought me in and for just some reason it felt different to me. It just, the whole experience going to the doctor's office, it felt like something was wrong and I knew something was wrong but didn't want to think something was wrong. I don't know. It's just my body telling me get in, get checked. And I had an ultrasound that same day, and uh, I just remember the doctor coming in and reading the ultrasound and putting her hand on my leg and saying, so what are your next steps? Oh, wow. And I've never heard that before. (laughs) So I was sitting there, obviously very nervous, and just saying, well, I'm going to run back up to talk to my doctor. And all she said was, either way, this is going to be removed, so I recommend you go talk to your doctor. So I was, of course, you know, freaking out and went up to talk to him and he performed a biopsy. And two days later, I got the call at work that I had breast cancer and it was a complete shock to him and everybody. He was 99% sure it was just another fibroadenoma uh, and wouldn't turn into breast cancer. But that's how my journey started. <laughs> so it, I, I always love in, in a kind of a terrible way that the, the, the young adult stories are like and then i got to call it work <laughs> so it's like yeah you know, of course we have lives and jobs and we're just being ourselves in our 20s and 30s you got to jo- call it work so did they you know, like hey it's it's me oh you have cancer come in or is it like there's something really weird we're going to make you wait 48 hours for a doctor appointment yeah it was just a really weird experience i was sitting in a cube you know a cubicle in a typical office environment with so many people around me you have no privacy and i happened to just look down at my cell phone and saw the my doctor call and so i stepped away from my cube and and he was like do you have a second to talk and i'm like oh, I, I guess so and first of all i knew it was bad when my doctor's calling because like usually yes. it's nurse or somebody else saying everything's fine and I just remember him, it really sounded like he was crying on the other line, like just it was hysterical, like he couldn't believe it. He was in shock. And I just grabbed all my stuff. I don't even know what I grabbed. And I drove home, and I don't even know how I drove home. It, it all just seems like a blur at this point, um, looking back at it now. But definitely work was not the place that I wanted to hear it. Uh, but unfortunately, I live an hour away from my doctor, so it wasn't something that I could just go in and talk to him. He unfortunately had to give me the news over the phone, but I was set up with an amazing care team the next day who called me to get appointments all scheduled. So it moved very fast. 
So is it is it a fair comparison to say that you were uniquely positioned having had pre-existing maybe scares in the past that you are a you know a, a vigilant checker if I can make that hashtag up the vigilant checker Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm a big advocate of self-examination and I feel like if I didn't do that I don't know where I would be today I could be in a completely different situation or I may not even be here and that's really scary to think about since you know I never really thought about death and all of that and you hear a cancer diagnosis and it's scary and I never thought this could happen to me at 27 years old with no family history or anything and it's just so important for women and men because men can get breast cancer too just to stay in tune with their bodies and check yourself every month well it goes back to a lot of the uh primary care doctors tend to you know like like they told you it's probably nothing you're too young for this and you know there are very few cancers in young adulthood that can be screened for through self-exam like testicular cancer Sometimes thyroid cancer, if you know what to look for, breast cancer, obviously you can't really screen for like blood cancers and um, like like uh, like ovarian cancer or things like that. But I'm always fascinated by the varying degrees of data, pro and con, that self-exam matters if you're at the mercy of primary care because you have poor insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think about the statistics and all of that and it's you know, I felt fine. Like, it's not like I had any side effects or like anything to make me think like, oh, I'm sick. It it was just, oh, I felt the lump. And in my situation, if the lump wasn't there or there was no other telltale sign that something could be wrong, I don't know what would have happened or what I would have done. So in other situations, it's really scary when there's no clear sign that something is wrong or could be wrong. Right. So what was standard treatment, or did you get first-line standard treatment for stage 2 breast cancer? Yeah, so I first started uh, with a lumpectomy. I had surgery last November. After all the scans that I had, it was just contained to that pretty small lump that I had. So my surgeon recommended that a lumpectomy would be the best way to go. I came back negative on all genetic testing. So if that came back positive, that would have completely changed my treatment plan. But after the surgery, I did have six rounds of pretty aggressive chemo every three weeks. Um, And after that, I also had, I had like a month off, and then I had 33 daily rounds of radiation. I wrapped that up in July of this year, and now I'm currently getting Herceptin infusions because I came back HER2 positive, which is a type of breast cancer. Um, So I need that every three weeks until January, and I'll be on hormone therapy for probably five to ten years. So I'm not done. (laughs) I've got quite a a long couple steps in front of me until I'm done. I don't think I'll ever be done. (laughs) Well, that speaks so much to where we as an organization and our partner groups in all cancers talk about survivorship, which is a kind of a wonky word, but I typically frame it through the lens of how can it suck less because it's going to suck but how can it suck less especially when you're staring down the barrel of the next x years and you're 28 just trying to be 28 yeah and that's definitely what i'm facing with now and what the challenge is for me right now and i think so many people are saying to me oh you're done chemo you're done the hardest parts like now you can go on and live your normal life and it's 
to me, I'm like, normal, what is that, first of all, because there is no normal. And second of all, I'm still going through treatment, and I'm still trying to deal with the fact that I just went through, like, the crappiest couple months of my life. Like, how can I just go ahead and jump back into work and be okay? And that's the hardest thing, and I think for me, it's really talking to other survivors who have been down this road, and how did they deal with it, and what have they been able to cope with and some strategies that they can recommend because this second stage the survivorship like you said is it's not easy it's a challenge in and of itself for sure you had mentioned uh that you were um tested for genetic um genetic you were screened for for a genetic profile is that standard or do you have to ask for that When I was brought in to meet my whole care team, a genetic counselor was actually someone who I met with. I was at the hospital for like a day. It was very overwhelming. I met with my surgeon, my oncologist, my radiation oncologist, and a genetic counselor was actually someone that was part of the care team. So she gave me some options and some genes that if I was interested, they could test for to see why I got breast cancer since it's not on my mom or my dad's side. Ovarian cancer is not on either side, and those two can sometimes be linked. So it was a tough decision for me to think of just because there's so many other implications that can come out of the genetic testing. But I also had to think of I have two younger sisters and a family that is full of women. So I thought of that, and I decided to go through with it and get the genetic testing. So if it wasn't brought up, I don't know if it's something that I would have even thought of, uh, but it was good to have that option out there. And now I'm telling other young women who are reaching out to me, I'm like, if you can get genetic tested, do it, because it could definitely change your whole treatment plan. One of the biggest questions I continue to get asked even 10 years later is, well, why, why young adults? Why do you matter? And, well, we're not really better or worse than kids and old people, but we're different. And, well, how are you different? And I always say we have working gonads. And when your uterus works and you're producing sperm, fertility matters when you're our age. And they're like, oh, you're right. So what does that mean? So I, if you're willing to share, was that I, you mentioned that you had like a day's notice, but was there any conversation around whether this would would or could impact your ability to have children one day? Or is that even in the mind's eye of someone dealing with what the hell is happening right now? Yeah, and I definitely was worried about that right from the beginning, right when I heard, you're, you're going to need chemo. My first thing was, you know, am I going to be infertile? Am I going to be able to have kids? You know, right now in my life, I'm not at the point where I'm ready for kids yet, but, you know, five, de- five years down the road, it's going to be a completely different story. So I had to plan for that. And a fertility counselor, I did speak with a fertility doctor during um, my time at the hospital, and it was a very difficult conversation to have, um, especially since I'm not married. I have a boyfriend, but, you know, we're not officially married, so we had to think about, you know, eggs and embryos and all the legal implications that can come from that, and it was just a lot to have up front, and I decided to not go through with the fertility and it was a tough decision but I really had to go with my gut and I mainly was concerned about the cancer coming back because my cancer was hormone positive 
And if I went through with fertility, the amount of hormones that I would would have had to inject daily or get back on the pill, it was just scary to me. And even though there may be no direct link that you know, estrogen and could have caused it to come back with these hormones. I just didn't want to go down that road. And I had the feeling that everything's going to be okay when that time comes in my life. Um, So right now my ovaries are shut down. I get a monthly injection. So I'm technically in menopause, which stinks, (laughs) but I'm able to protect my eggs for when the time is right. Right, so your blog is called Diary of a 27-Year-Old Fighter at MoniqueRose8.com, and I think everything you've explained to us is just so summary executive of the young adult cancer experience. I can't help but go back to how you were a digital marketer in healthcare, and now you're you're drinking this, this crazy Kool-Aid. What has yeah. it been like for you as a marketer to see, obviously, it is October, it's breast cancer, nausea, you know, the bombardment of all of this, I was joking at the top of the segment, but, you know, when you work in marketing, you see things a little differently than the average person. Has this been almost too much for you? Or is it like, I can't believe I'm part of this now or get away from me? Yeah, it's kind of a combination of all of them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think it's hard to see the pink everywhere. And, you know, you see people buying pink shirts and, you know, giving money to organizations and which is great and it's awesome if it can go to patients and go to research but I just never thought that I would be on the other side and I recently was actually at a breast cancer walk yesterday and I've always participated in charity events but it was so different to wear a survivor sash and have people cheering me on throughout the walk and I just never thought that that would be me. So, you know, I, I'm glad that I have my marketing experience and my knowledge, and it's, I'm hoping that it can help me when somebody else is diagnosed and what their online journey will be like. And, you know, my blog is out there, and I'm hoping that other young women, I hate that they have to join this, survive, this Pink Sister Club and join our survivor, but I want to be able to have information out there because the internet is scary and there's some things out there that just you don't think of like you google anything you google breast cancer you google mastectomies and you see all these crazy pictures and I just wanted to stay real and give real advice that I hope can help other young women and I've had so many women reach out to me and just my experiences let alone everyone is different going through this, but just being able to help them a little bit has helped me. Well, you took a big risk. We, we always consider our international annual conference, CancerCon, to be truly jumping into the deep end of the pool, and you jumped into the deep end of the pool. Yes. <laughs> Where, <laughs> that, that takes a lot of, we, we would say chuspah in Yiddish, that takes a lot of gumption to just do that, even s- less than six months after your diagnosis, what was it like for you to go? It was amazing. Um, It was a great experience for me. I think if any other young survivor ever has the opportunity to go, they should go without thinking twice. I was still going through chemo at the time, and I, I think the conference was right before my last round of chemo, so I thought it would be 
great to kind of celebrate that last milestone but also being around so many young survivors and so many people who understand what I'm going through. And I thought the speakers were great. Everything was great. And I want to go back this year, and I just highly recommend it to anybody. It's, you feel so alone when you hear you have cancer, and it really stinks. It, but to be around so many people who get it, it just makes you feel that much closer to the young survivor group. Well, I thank you for that testimony. It goes back to how we really do try to make it suck a little less, and we're, mm-hmm. we hope we do that that job. Um, we got about two minutes left, but I wanted to let you know this particular show features um, where some of our, our principal guests are from the Stupid Chemicals um, plenary from CancerCon this past spring, and we know that you have been very vocal on your blog about you know personal products and safety, and you know how. You don't even know what's in the things you're putting on your body, so it's. I'm I'm glad that that had uh, rubbed off on you a little bit. Have you have you always been that way, just averse to the complacency of buying anything on the shelf? Um, I've always, you know, looked at the ingredients on products, but I never really thought twice about it. Uh, but after attending that session at CancerCon, I immediately went to go tell all my family and friends, you need to check what's in your shampoo or in your soap that you use every day or your deodorant. And now I use all natural personal products and I don't touch anything with chemicals in it. And I really try to stay away from that because I don't know why I got breast cancer. And, but if I can do or not use certain products um, that have all these carcinogens in them, then I'm not going to use them. So it was definitely eye-opening to me and very scary to see that every one of my personal products ranked like a 9 or 10 on the chemical list. Uh, So I've completely changed what I use personal product-wise, and I've encouraged everybody to do the same that I know. And people have been very thankful for that because they didn't know either. So it comes down to the education, I think. Right, and we're huge fans here at the Stupid Cancer Show of an app called Think Dirty, which is that, you know— holy shit-a-meter of what is really bad in your product. Just zap your UPC code on your product, and it tells you, you know, you're going to die or you're not going to die. And it's, it's that blatant and amazing. Yeah, it was a little scary. I know, <laughs> but right? I how it gave me some recommendations on healthier products to use that are ranked like a zero or yeah, a one. So exactly. that's what I switched over to. All right. So uh, final question here. What is your um, message, your takeaway? I know, obviously, go to CancerCon is probably what you want to say, <laughs> but <clears throat> you're you're new to the stupid cancer universe. You're a young woman with breast cancer or any cancer or even anybody with young adult cancer. What would you like to, what do you wish you had known that you could tell yourself today, a year ago? Yeah, and I, I know that sounds very cliche, but I think it comes down to, you know, you're stronger than you think you are. And throughout my whole journey, I always tried to have a smile on my face. I always tried to think of the positive. And to me, this battle was 90% mental. And I had to always think of the positive. Yeah, there were days where I couldn't get off the couch and it was awful. But I always thought it could be so much worse. And I'm going to get through this. I've learned so much about myself. And the smile that I had on my face went a long way. And I know that I've inspired many people along the way. So I'm looking forward to many more happy things to happen in a bright future. Monique Tremblay blocking at MoniqueRose8.com. Diary of a 27-year-old fighter is a 28-year-old breast cancer survivor. Digital health 
marketer diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer just about a year ago. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Bye. All right, Mal. And now, the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Stupid cancer does a whole lot of awesome things, and here's what's happening now. The OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults started in 2008. In eight years, 14 summits have brought together more than 6,000 people. On October 29th, join the Young Adult Cancer Movement in Orange, California. OMG West is all about community. Learn more at omgsummit.org. Join us for a different kind of social mixer. No pressure, no judgments, no stigma. Best of all, no sitting around in a circle sharing your feelings. Find a meetup in your area at events.stupidcancer.org. Or host your own. Just go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup. We have one meetup coming up in Las Vegas, Nevada. Awesome. We want to see how you get busy living. So follow Stupid Cancer on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please don't forget to tag us at Stupid Cancer. Join the movement. Show how you get busy living in your Stupid Cancer gear. Shop at stupidcancerstore.org. We've been doing the show now for 10 years and want to hear more from you, our listeners. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Fill out our survey at stupidcancer.org slash podcast survey and get 15% off any purchase in the Stupid Cancer store. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, Stupid Chemicals, our main segment. Michael Green, the CEO at the Center for Environmental Health. He's worked in India for Mother Teresa, the Tibetan government, in exile in Washington, D.C., Probably the worst of the three for the U.S. Department of Energy and the U.S. EPA. Joining him, Nicole Acevedo, the science director at Beauty Counter. Nicole is the head of uh, comprehensively screening all product ingredients for safety. My old job. Nicole works with the environmental health and safety team to improve the safety and sustainability profile of their products to increase awareness of the need for safer, basically all the stuff that shouldn't give you cancer. Please welcome to the show Nicole Acevedo and Michael Green. I'm, I'm, I can never get enough of doing shows about stupid chemicals. It's such a resonant issue, and it keeps growing every time we talk about it. And I hope you guys see that on your end as well. Yeah, it's crazy. So, Absolutely. So I want to let's go. Let's start with Beauty Counter because I'm fascinated at the business model because it's working first and foremost, and yeah. it's something that never could have been even perceived as viable even years ago, given the. Um, I, I guess the disarray of the American Chemistry Council's influence over market. Can you talk about the origins of Beauty Counter and what you guys are up to today? Yeah, so Beauty Counter is about three and a half years old. So we're we're still a, I think we're in the toddler phase. Is I think the official way we claim our status these days. But um, yeah, it's this wonderful brainchild of our CEO Greg Renfrew who decided that she didn't really understand why there wasn't regulation of the personal care space and that you should be able to have safer products and have them perform beautifully. So she teamed up with a couple of, of great, great uh, women who have created this brand of really these high-performing, safer products, and our ingredient selection process is actually industry-leading and really looking at 
really critical health endpoints and also some ecological endpoints when we when we're assessing for, for safety and sustainability. So on top of that, we are also really, really strong advocates of reform in the regulatory space. So yeah, we're out there pounding the pavement on on the hill and getting Congress to pay attention to what we're saying. And we're building an incredibly strong business model out of it for a lot of people. And it, so yeah, it's working. You can have safer, you can have financially viable and thriving and, you know, we can have open discussions about what's not working and, and educate people to to do better for themselves. And that's really the probably the third and really, from my perspective, one of the most important arms of what we do. We really work to educate the consumer and have an open dialogue around what we're finding is safer and how we define it. And um, and yeah, that's that's what Beauty Counter is doing. No, and it's it's truly amazing, Michael. <clears throat> CEO at the can Center I, for Environmental Health. Your, your can comments I say something on that, about Beauty Counter? Yes. So um, there, there. I just in my job, I deal with companies a lot who are either walking the talk or claiming they're walking the talk and they're not, or mm-hmm. not even trying to walk the talk and trying to hope that they don't get noticed about it. And Beauty Counter is really unusual that they're re- they're really pushing the envelope. And so for me, as a you know advocacy guy, it's a mm-hmm. pleasure to get to collaborate with folks like you guys. Oh, well, you know, it's it's what we're all drawn here, those of us that are drawn for the mission, which is really, really all of us, but those of us in kind of some of these key positions in the company are really, really, I mean, this is what it's all about. I come from an, the academic and um, more of the regulatory and academic space, so, so being in industry is a very new space for me, and so I'm, if it's not, if it's not the real deal, I don't buy it. So what we're doing really is trying to sh- shake shake up the system. And what I love about what we're doing so much is that, you know, y- you give people some information, you bring them along the journey with you, and you're just really honest and transparent. They're going to thank you for that. They're going to be like, thank you for just treating us like as a, you know treating us as adults and as consumers that can understand um, how to make better choices for ourselves. And this is how this is how you move it. You know, it's this is really how you move markets. Well, I think what it excites me the most <clears throat> is that it seems so self-evident that if you did like a man on the street interview and said, "Would you prefer that your new couch give you cancer or not give you cancer?" <laughs> most people would say the latter. I would prefer yeah. that my new couch does not give me cancer. How has that been able to translate in any way to the vote with your wallet initiative? That this really should be taking on. Is but, this is this for me or for either, Michael? For either one of you. Okay, I'll let Michael take it. Okay. Um, well, I you know one thing about the voting with your wallet is we're in a predicament. If there's eighty four thousand chemicals that are allowed to be used by companies in the U S. eighty four thousand. There's no way the government can keep track of that. Mm-hmm. And there's and the vast majority of the companies are just looking to maximize their you know, their market share in the next quarter or maybe a little longer. And so that's a complicated problem. And it's not going to be fixed just by shopping our way out of this. But people can do a number of things. And one of the things that they can do is they can actually, um, um, you know, buy products from, buy products that don't have the toxic materials in, in them that potentially can make them sick. And they can support the companies that are trying to push the envelope. And there are other things that also need to be done from a 
policy perspective or uh, fighting the good fight perspective against the companies that are willing to make us sick just for a quick buck. You know, there's a lot of different things we need to be doing all at the same time to really make a difference. So in terms of simple things like BPA, which we've been discussing for years now, and they take it out of certain things, they don't take it out uh, uh, bisphenol A. Is that what it's the chemical term yeah. is? So with all of the regulations around that in certain products, how is it still allowed to be in other products? Like I see you have an initiative about BPA, canned food in Florida. At California, sorry. Um, so uh, <clears throat> the thing is that just because um, – uh, they're not no longer using BPA, say, in baby bottles and sippy cups. doesn't mean that they've banned this chemical. And so we're getting exposed to it from all kinds of different sources. So um, one thing that people could actually do is if they want, if they can actually test, that if you want to know whether, um, uh, you know, canned food that you buy has BPA in the can and then therefore likely, not certain, but likely in the food, you can send us a can. And if you send us a can, we'll let you know whether we found BPA in the can. So we have a page that right now uh, we made today just for Stupid Cancer, just for this show. And, um, and it's, it's at our website. It's ceh.org backslash test it, T-E-S-T-I-T. We're on it. And, and if you go to that site, there's, you know, it basically uh, gives you an opportunity to um, test your, you know, test a can for BPA. That's fascinating. Um, or, or a receipt. You well, know, those, are the two, those are the two things that we're worried about. Because people, you know, like if you go to a, a, a fast food place and you get the receipt and you get the French fries, and then, you, you, know, you're, you know, you're touching both things at the same time, putting them in your mouth, and you're, you know, eating the BPA if it's on the receipt. It sounds yummy, really yummy. Mm-hmm. Nicole, I see you guys are in Target now. That must have been a really big win. Yeah, that was an exciting, exciting collaboration. It's a short-term, it's a nine-week capsule collection with Target, and we're actually the first beauty brand that they embarked on this capsule collection with. So it's been, it's been, really, it's been really interesting, and we actually were training their beauty concierges, which are the, the folks that are in-house at the Target uh, that work with the clients and educate them on the, on the different products. And so we had a really nice opportunity to engage with them on a real educational level. Uh, around our products and around not just what's in them, but you know the safety around them. So it's just a, another another platform to to people to start talking about these crazy sounding ingredients that you know people tend to shy away from because they sound scary or or you know questions around natural versus synthetic sourcing and all these different things. So it's just been been really um, it's been a nice opportunity to keep expanding the conversation. So let me ask you both. Actually, Michael can ask this, I answer this, I believe, in, in, in some form. Is there, does there exist a sort of good housekeeping seal of approval, similar to how the, you know, the organic seal or the no GMO seal, around what is considered a safe product? And there's, there's, unfortunately, there's not really. So if you want to protect yourself from pesticides, you can look for organic food. And, uh, um, um, and if you... But the thing is that uh, food is the one and organics are the one thing that there's sort of clarity about what's okay and not okay. Um, if you want to protect yourself from stuff that, you're, uh, that you have in your home, the thing that you – unfortunately, you got to – there's not just a one-stop shop. But you, 
want to buy um, and have in your home and come into contact with more natural things and less artificial things. So what do I mean by that? I mean, if you think about a glass bottle, which is basically made out of sand, versus a plastic bottle, which is made out of you know, natural gas or oil and then a whole bunch of chemicals mixed in with it, you're less likely to be coming into contact with chemicals that can make you sick if you go with the natural product. So that goes for everything that's in your life. And so if you're thinking about what you're eating out of, if you're eating out of um, wood or stainless steel or glass or ceramic, which is just clay, then you're much more likely to not be exposed to toxic chemicals than if you're eating out of something that is made in a laboratory. Again, common sense. <laughs> I can't really debate everything, anything you just said right there. So let's let's talk about the flip side then, because as <clears throat> you are coming to market, excuse me, speaking of allergies and probably eating out eating of bad things, I, I, <laughs> I, um, I can't help but want to steer the conversation towards the dark side where the conspiracies of yesteryear are truths today and that there are people who have no interest in supporting human health and the safety of our chemicals and our products because of profit margins and shareholders. Um, how are you guys working and what can the communities do with you guys to steer that in a better direction? So, you know, one of one of the things that we've already spoken a little bit about is just, you know, in the personal care space, which, you know, the, I'm not sure if you're if you're familiar with kind of the very outdated law that's on the books that's uh, basically regulating a sixty mil, sixty billion dollar industry here in the states. You know, it's it's a one and a half page bill that was written in 1938, and that's essentially what is overseeing. V- barely overseeing, but overseeing the personal care space in this country um, in terms of regulation. So it doesn't really protect us from, from anything, and it doesn't give the FDA any kind of real tangible oversight or ability to um, recall, recall unsafe products or hold companies accountable for, for um, using unsafe ingredients in their products. Um, so, you know, we're up against a lot, but just the, the voice of the consumer is so incredibly powerful, especially, you know, in the household and personal care space. I mean, we we really do we do advocate with our dollars, and so having people understand the platforms by talking to them about where things stand in the regulatory space, and then empowering people to contact their senators and their House of Representatives, and um, just really say this is what we want and giving them some tangible ways to do that. So, you know, for example, we are at Beauty Counter, we have put together a really simple um, text that anybody can plug in. And if, you know, I can, I can share it right now. It's, it's, it's really great. It's just the, the word is just better beauty, all one word. And you just text better beauty to 52886. And then you'll get a, and then you'll get a link, and then you can email Congress directly. So it's basically saying, hey, here's a platform for anybody, the touch of their fingers on their phone, to say this is an important matter. Please listen to us. We're the consumers. You know, we want to move this forward. So, as science director, how does that distinguish your role in the in the organization? 
So, so my role is not is is directly in the advocacy space. It's um, you know we've got some a great a great team here um, addressing that, but my role really is to be working much more in the day to day with the product development and making sure that the formulas are, you know, really hitting our safety standards and also in the educational platform. So working much more to develop the educational material for both in-house training and also externally for, for our website and all of our um, public-facing documents. So, you know, it's a lot of information. There's, there are a lot of data gaps in this industry, and we're working really hard to fill them. And where we don't fill them, we speak to that. And, you know, where we can't fill them in the moment, we can speak to that. And it just um, – just keep, like I said, just just keep the momentum going for for advocating for safer alternatives, you know, as best we can, and helping our supply chain understand what their options are. And um, a lot of times, we you know, we have found that a lot of times, you know, the, there are better options, but you have to push the supply chain um, in order to really work with them because they're used to doing what they've always done, and that's not always been um, looking at safer. So. Well, I said that with a certain degree of uh, of, of uh, latitude because science these days may not be as serious as science may have used to have been many, many years ago because, you know, who knows? It's only science, right? So how do you develop the standards where you now know this doesn't cause this? Like where, where is uh, the, uh, yeah. where, you know, where, where are the baselines coming from in the, in the legit biological world that you, you guys work in? Sure. Well, that, that's a that's a thick that's a rich question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so yeah, I mean we for the most part work with the information that's available in you know through regulatory bodies, and we work our, our basis really is the most robust science that's out there. So we look to the EU, we look to Canada, we look to Japan, we look to all the other regulatory standards that already exist and look at the signs that they've already reviewed. We also do some deep peer review journal reviews um, on what's known about the key ingredients we're using. I mean, all ingredients, but we're really looking at um, any ingredients that have uh, some, some solid science behind them and, or ingredients that might maybe ingredient we're looking at might not have solid science, but maybe one that structurally looks like it might, might indeed have something. So we're exploring, you know, like I said, the regulatory space, the, 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 the um, peer-reviewed journal research space. We're also commissioning studies. We're working with partners outside of our industry and other green chemistry partners and academic spaces. I mean, we are just like we're, we're playing with a lot of different collaborators um, around not just not just in the States but around the world and just – you know, we're really trying to fill in these data gaps and share responsibly the information that we do learn. Michael, and just cursory glancing your website, ceh.org, I'm looking at uh, they're suing Dow over pesticides and baby rat poisoning is killing actual babies. Does anything surprise you anymore? No, it's crazy. And so you you know what occasionally will surprise me is if I look at someone like uh, Nicole's resume and I'm like, oh, so she's working over on the private sector side with that resume. That's great. But more often than not, uh, what what's what it is is it, it's easy to be cynical in my line of work, of because you know my job is to protect people from toxic chemicals that corporations are exposing us to. But um, you know they make up their own science often, and or they decide they they figure out where they want to end up and then they work backwards. You know they do the science, they work backwards to 
to you know design uh, science that will get them the conclusion they want. And so that's very distressing. And that is the that's the appropriate role of government to to protect us. And government is not necessarily doing that. And that's why we have to do something like sue Dow for um, making people sick. And it's just um, you know you're you're in these meetings with the with these companies that are. Uh, frequently just not of a high ethical standard, and it's very distressing. And I have to admit, though, that I'm of the personality that I do get a little bit of a thrill of uh, beating the crap out of them when they lie. Well, that comes down to, does social public shaming work anymore? Yeah. Or yeah, you know, I was in a meeting once with Pepsi. Pepsi and Coke both had this toxic chemical in it. We told them, take it out or we'll sue you. Pepsi took uh, Coke took it out. Pepsi didn't. And then I'm in this meeting, and um, it was clear that all they really wanted us to do was to stop comparing them to Coke. And, they would, <laughs> and, and so they took the chemical out because they wanted us to stop comparing them to Coke. That was basically what they needed. So it was PR. So, yeah, it can work. <laughs> and nothing to do with ethics. It was just PR. You can take it how you want. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you for sharing that story. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Okay. <laughs> So in terms of the chemical safety laws, uh, you know, we, we have done extensive coverage on this show and at our conferences and through our content around TOSCA, which is this, you know, I, I, hopefully our community is aware of it at some point. But the uh, toxic chemical safety, something, something that was passed by Frank Lautenberg when I was born 40 years ago. And something happened with it last year that was great, but not great. Can you guys comment on the state of that bill? I know it's an election season, look, it's happening now, but where is it now, and what can people do? I'll take a crack at that. So there was uh, uh, there was the Toxic Substances Chemical Act of 1976, and that law, the last time they tried that that the government tried to ban a chemical under the Toxic Substances Chemicals Act, sounds like a law you could ban chemicals under, was asbestos in the early 80s. And the day after they banned asbestos, the asbestos companies sued the EPA and won, and EPA never tried again to ban a chemical under Tosca. So fast forward now to this year and a bill that we were um, not thrilled with, but, you know, we it was hand to hand combat between, you know, like I believe folks from Beauty Connor did uh, visits on Capitol Hill with our staff. Um, um, we got a we got a law that has some substantial weaknesses and some substantial strengths. But we there a law now passed that's going to give EPA some authority to actually start to protect us from the worst of the worst chemicals. And is it what I would have written? No. And, but now it's passed, and now our job is to make sure that EPA implements it in a way that protects us. So that opens up another question about the EPA, because you guys are also taking on fracking, which may not be a beauty counter issue, but fracking mm -hmm. clearly affects everybody in the neighborhood. It's creating earthquakes in the Midwest. So mm -hmm. that whole plate tectonic thing that's not supposed to happen... Uh, how, you know, I'll leave that to like the San Andreas movie with the rock. But at the end of the day, there shouldn't be earthquakes in the middle America. But in terms of the, the EPA, are you feeling more confident in their ability to work with groups like yours? Or is there still some, I'll be nice, is there still some growth potential for them to evolve to actually doing what they were supposed to be doing? Growth potential? Um, so, uh, um, it, you know, obviously it depends a lot on what happens on the first uh, Tuesday of November. Right. And, um, you know, Trump wants to eliminate the EPA, or so he says. You know, you never know 
what he really means. Um, and so obviously we are better off with um, someone who doesn't intend to eliminate the EPA if you think the EPA can help us. Um, the, the, the real deal is that there is constant fighting and bickering and gridlock in D.C., just like we hear. It's actually really true. And they're not going to change overnight, which means that if there's a, an administration that you don't like, that can help you to sleep at night. And if there's an administration that you do like, it means you're not going to get everything you want. And so there will be gradual change in the right direction, in my opinion. And um, it's gradual, and it's not going to be fast enough for those of us who are worried about our loved ones who are getting sick or anything like that. But we're, we have the power to move them in the right direction, especially if people um, get active and can have an impact on it. So we hope that you know the folks who are uh, your members you know, uh, can get involved with us in the way that you – know, by the same website – the same page on our website that has the testing also has the link to how to join and get action alerts so that they can get active. So we got a few minutes left, and I really want to end on a positive note because actually there actually are positive notes here, which is a really big deal to point out. And uh, let's go back to Nicole because, A, Beauty Counter in and of itself is a success story. Yeah, it's, it really is. And you know what's really, you know, beyond, beyond what our company is doing per se, you know, what, another really, really encouraging note is um, that for a lot of chemicals, you know, there are some obviously some persistent chemicals that stay in our system for, for you know, for, for a long time. But there are also classes of what we consider harmful or potentially endocrine disrupting chemicals that um, can enter our system either through the food we eat or through the you know, personal products we use and whatnot that, you know, if we actually don't expose ourselves to them over a period of a few days, it can actually reduce our, our load in our bodies. So, you know, this is, I think, extremely positive because especially as we start talking to, you know, what we call the vulnerable populations. So, you know, anybody that is pregnant or, you know, young people, you know, pubertal slash, you know, young adult, um, you know, these are really critical windows of, of development um, for the individual. And these are times when these kinds of, these kinds of chemicals can really make kind of wreak havoc more so than other times in our lives. So really getting people to be aware um, in real time about how they can make really conscious consumer choices that are safer, you know, it, it, it can change, you know, it can, it can help change the course of your life. And I think that it's, it's really important to know that. And there are studies that have come out just in the last um, couple of years that have shown this in terms of specifically the, the body burden of some of these harmful chemicals and consumer and in, in, in personal care products in, in young women. So, and how we can clear them and whatnot. So I think that's a really positive note. I think we can just remember that every day the choices we make can only help us you know, right. to live a better future. So, And Michael, I mean, you have an entire page on the CEH.org uh, website about our top accomplishments, the least of which is, oh, lead. That's still in the news. How is lead still in the news? Um, because, uh, you know, unfortunately, the way our system works is that if companies can make a buck doing something, um, they're going to they're going to do it even if there's a risk to people. But I, I because you want to end on something positive, I want to say something positive about 
large the, the the large role that people can play even though we can't totally shop our way out of this if you think about what's happening right now with even very large companies who we sometimes disdain like target or walmart they have so much power over the way things are made because especially in the age of globalization frequently the the manufacturer is in china or bangladesh or someplace and um and the fact that the walmarts and targets of the world are are nervous about whether they are going to lose market share because they are selling products that are that contain toxic chemicals even if they're not really hitting it out of the park the fact that they are competing with each other around this is revolutionary and 10 years ago mm -hmm. they they weren't engaging in this conversation and so that means that they believe that enough people care about this that they need to change so that they can make a buck and that actually to me is a very good sign well, that goes back to how survivorship in, in our world, so cancer survivorship, the lifestyle of someone who is living beyond cancer that has issues, can you monetize that? Is that in the interest of companies because they're all about cure? And I totally get that. If you can truly find a way to make it look like people are valued in that space, then companies will come. Mm-hmm. So, right. And then for it, it's the role of an organization, an advocacy organization, to call out the companies that are exaggerating and lying about that, um, because people shouldn't have a PhD like Nicole has to be able to um, know what's safe to buy. Um, but there is, I, I genuinely believe that there that we're making more progress than we are slipping. No, I, I would agree hands down. Even just to say we're at Target now, if just being in business for three years, that is pretty huge bragging rights. So kudos again. To you guys, uh, I'm always fascinated to have this conversation with you. It will surely not be the last time we discuss it, but I thank you again for joining us. Uh, Nicole, your first time here, but Beauty Canner, uh, we're yeah. huge fans of Beauty Canner. And Michael Green, the CEO at the Center for Environmental, Environmental Health at CEH.org. And Nicole Acevedo, Science Director at BeautyCanner.com. Thank you so much for joining us on the Stupid Cancer Show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. That's our show the 397th episode of the stupid cancer show don't miss an episode subscribe to the podcast on itunes or follow us on soundcloud i'd like to thank our guests monique tremblay michael green from the center for environmental health and nicole acevedo from beauty counter the stupid cancer show is a production of stupid cancer the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer Find us online at stupidcancer.org. Coming, coming to you from downtown Manhattan. On behalf of the team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next time. Goodbye, folks.